everybody. What is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today, we're specifically in Genesis 31, verses 22 through 55. But we're just going to do a recap of Jacob's relationship with Laban and examine what we can specifically learn from Laban at the end of today's reading assignment. So backing up a whole lot, Jacob deceives his father and takes off, ends up with four wives, but he really only loves Rachel. And the only thing, or really only person, that humbles Jacob is Laban. So to set the scene for us today, you rewind to Genesis 30. Rachel finally has a kid, and Jacob's ready to leave. So he asks Uncle Laban if they can finally part ways, and Jacob can go live his own life with his family, if you will. It's kind of a leave-and-cleave request. And Laban acknowledges that he's received a lot of blessing from God due to Jacob's presence in his life, which is funny because Laban literally made Jacob work for him for a gazillion years, so it's kind of an obvious. But, but Jacob puts it like this, Genesis 30, verse 30. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything I've done. But now, what about me? When can I start providing for my own family? So in response, Laban asks Jacob what he wants. And Jacob's like, hey, let me make you a deal. I I will take all of your black and speckled and spotted sheep. That way, in the future, you'll be able to tell if I was honest, because if I have any sheep that aren't blemished, you'll know I stole from you. But then, and Laban's like, yeah, that's a great deal. But then he deceives Jacob, and he hides all the sheep that meet those qualifications, making it really difficult for Jacob to acquire sheep that meet this description as he's caring for them. Initially, I thought Jacob put these streaked branches in the troughs so that any sheep who were born would get dirty and thus appear as though they were striped, spotted, or black, like maybe there was dirty bark or something on them. But that's not what's happening. Jacob was subscribing to what might have been really a superstition that suggested if the environmental conditions were changed for the mating and the birth of of the sheep, and he's doing this by these white sticks that he's putting out, then the baby sheep would look different. And as one commentator puts it, this was a popular belief that certain experiences of the mother during pregnancy influenced the condition of her offspring and therefore would mislead Laban. However, this school of thought that Jacob was subscribing to is actually impossible and doesn't work. Nevertheless, as the commentator puts it, whether Jacob was very smart or very superstitious, the success of Jacob's plan was due to the grace of God ultimately, as we see in chapter 31. As with many of the tricks with which Jacob attempts in these narratives, God blessed Jacob in spite of them, not because of or through them. And because Jacob only used this practice when the strong sheep mated and God was working behind the scenes in his favor, he essentially gathered for himself this awesome, uh, just stocked up, jacked flock of strong sheep. And then we get to chapter 31. Laban's sons are catching on to what Jacob's been doing, and they start to complain. And Jacob then starts to notice Laban's attitude's a little different. So we read in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. And we get this dialogue between Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Jacob explains, hey, God's been at work behind the scenes in this whole sheep situation. And the girls acknowledge that their father's been taking advantage of them pretty much their whole lives, and essentially says, we don't have anything else left to lose. So they leave. But right before they left, 
Rachel stole Laban's household gods. Now, these gods, as another commentator puts it, were usually small figurines, two to three inches long, sometimes carried on the body as charms, many of which archaeologists have discovered, and they may have represented departed ancestors or gods that their makers venerated. Now, Why she did this, we don't know. Scholars disagree. Some people thought she did it because there was a custom that said whoever had them was the household heir, or she could have taken them on the off chance that they'd increase her fertility, or she simply took them as a malicious act against her father. Nevertheless, Laban finds out and chases after them, but luckily, God commands Laban not to harm them. So Laban gets to the camp, he searches all the tents, but Rachel hid the household gods so Laban can't find them. Which leads to Jacob being pretty frustrated. I'd worked for you for so many years, you've searched all the tents and you still don't trust me. To which Laban answers. He says to Jacob, verse 43, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So I think Laban's realizing, hey, I'm having trouble letting go of my kids. They're growing up. I'm holding tightly to my possessions, and we're just living uncomfortably. There's so much strife and tension, so he suggests they make this covenant. What was this covenant? One commentator puts it like this. The so-called misfa was not really a promise between friends, but a warning between antagonists who did not trust each other. They called on God to keep each other true to the terms of the covenant they'd made. They could not check on each other themselves. This covenant also might be called a non-aggression pact. So they're making it official that they're going to get out of each other's ways. They part ways. They, they do it. They They make it official, they make the sacrifice, and they part ways. The end. So what do we make of this story? Well, there's one incredible detail we don't want to miss in verse 53. As they swear and commit to the covenant, it's important we note who they swear by. In verse 53, Laban says, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread, spent the night in the hill country. It's interesting, as the commentator concludes, Laban had two deities in mind when he said the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Jacob swore by the awesome one of Isaac, which indicates that he was worshiping the God of his fathers. Laban also swore by the pagan God his fathers worshiped. Laban, he clearly had a polytheistic worldview as evidenced by these household gods he clearly greatly valued. It's interesting. He he never seemed to be able to let go of his daughters or to release Jacob from his service. He was always holding on. His heart was torn, and he couldn't let go. And it's clear his heart was torn or divided when it came to whomever he worshipped as well. Even though the true God, the God of Abraham, visited him, He clung also to the God of Nahor. A heart divided leads to a life that's stifled. Let me say that again. A heart divided leads to a life that's stifled. Laban again and again made everything more complicated as he manipulated Jacob when it came to his daughters, his labor, the sheep, etc. 
Had Laban been fully surrendered to God's design for marriage and plan for the descendants of Abraham, I mean, Laban knew God was up to something in Jacob. He even literally said he'd been blessed because of Jacob. Nevertheless, his heart was divided and he couldn't let go of his daughters. And then he wouldn't allow Jacob to leave, even though he knew God had promised this family a specific home. The head knowledge wasn't enough. He knew what was right, but his heart was divided. He worshiped multiple gods. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Think about our own lives. When are we tempted to serve two masters? Maybe you know what God says is best, but there are just some things or some sheep you want to hold on to. For example, you know that one type of music doesn't honor God, but you love listening to it. Or you know you should speak up at work when you see compromising business practices playing out, but it'd be easier to keep your mouth shut. Or you know as a parent you're called to discipline your kids and train them up in the way they should go, but sometimes it's just, it's just easier to let the hard conversation slide. You know what God says is best, but these other thoughts that we can tend to cling to get in the way, like the little g-god of it's just one time, or the little g-god of it's just a joke, I want to be funny, well-liked, or the little g-god of but this will be easier. Laziness, complacency, shortcuts are far too easy to serve. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Think about it. When or where are you tempted to serve two masters? That's all we've got time for today. But as always, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.